The Bible never gives us her name, but it sure tells us a lot about her. The woman at the well. She had secrets that held her back and weighed her down. And then one blistering afternoon, she met a stranger who uncovered her past and then freed her from it. You're about to meet this Bible character through fresh eyes. Plus, we'll bring you up to date on everything you need to know about the Middle East. Welcome to The Land and the Book. Charlie Dyer is the genius behind this one-hour encounter that makes you feel like you've actually traveled to the Middle East. I guarantee you'll feel that. Stick around. I'm John Geiger, and many people wonder, how do I share the gospel with my Jewish friend? It's a good question. And that question recognizes the need, I think, for a sensitive approach to sharing with Jewish people. Don't you think, Charlie? I do, John. And that's why our friends at Life and Messiah want to help answer that question. They put together a series of helpful articles on how you can share the good news with Jewish people around you. You'll learn about Jewish cultural sensitivities, how anti-Semitism affects Jewish evangelism, the importance of Messianic prophecy, and more. To access the articles, visit lifeinmessiah.org. Click on the Moody Radio logo and sign up. You'll receive the articles to equip you with practical ways to share the good news with Jewish people around you or online. Again, click on the Moody Radio icon at lifeinmessiah.org. Well, let's swing our focus toward current events from the Middle East. Last week, the battle between Israel and Hamas was overshadowed by a battle between Israel and South Africa in the International Court of Justice at The Hague. I was really disturbed, Charlie, as I read the charges brought against Israel. Refresh us as to those charges and how did Israel respond? Most importantly, what happens next? Yeah, I think everybody should be disturbed by these charges. The major charge made by South Africa is that Israel is guilty of carrying out genocide in Gaza in its war against Hamas. The specific legal basis for the charge is the 1948 Genocide Convention claiming Israel intentionally committed acts to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, or racial, or religious group, namely the Palestinians in Gaza. They asked the International Court of Justice to take provisional measures and demand that Israel stop fighting and agree to a ceasefire. The evidence offered included the amount of destruction in Gaza, along with statements from some Israeli politicians calling on Israel to withhold food and fuel, to destroy Hamas, and even to resettle the population elsewhere. Israel responded by arguing that the claims of genocide lack credibility. Rather than trying to wipe out innocent civilians, Israel placed 70,000 phone calls to Gaza residents with instructions on where to flee and how to protect themselves. They dropped hundreds of thousands of leaflets with similar instructions. South Africa claimed these measures were also proof of genocide, though Israel said they were intended to keep civilians from harm and actually the opposite of genocide. Israel said the initial attack by Hamas, which included murder, rape, torture, beheading, and other horrific acts, were the real genocide, but were largely overlooked by South Africa. The destruction of buildings and death of civilians could have been avoided had Hamas not built terror tunnels under homes, mosques, and hospitals, or dressed as civilians while fighting in urban areas, or not used Gaza's civilians as human shields. Israel provided a strong defense of its actions in the war against Hamas, and while some of the more inflammatory comments made by Israeli politicians were indeed over the top, they didn't reflect the actual military or political decisions made by the war cabinet. And we've all seen fringe politicians make similar cringeworthy statements in our country and elsewhere. What matters is what the government actually decides to do, and Israel did not seek to deliberately wipe out non-combatants or wantonly destroy buildings or seek to expel an entire population. 
They're engaged in a war with an enemy that's chosen to practice genocide against the people of Israel while using their own people as human shields. So there has been genocide, but it's not by Israel. Now, what's the court going to decide? Well, if they follow the evidence, the case should be tossed out. But politics also plays a role in this, and it will be interesting to see if the court can stand up to the pressure that will be placed on it from outside. Hmm. Well, the fighting in Gaza does appear to be slowing in intensity. Could we be nearing the end of the conflict? And what impact could a reduction in fighting have on the actions of Hezbollah in Lebanon and the Houthis in Yemen? The intensity of the fighting has changed. Most of Gaza is in Israeli hands, uh, and the fighting that's going on is more localized, though in those places it is still intense. The number of rockets Hamas has been able to fire has dropped dramatically. You know, they're running out of rockets. Israel has said the operation will extend through the year. In fact, there was a report that it could extend into the following year. But what they're focusing on is more the mopping up that will continue along with the search for Hamas leadership the recovery of the hostages, and the establishment of a secure infrastructure to oversee the process of restoration and rebuilding. Israel has begun releasing groups of reservists from duty, and they're allowing some residents along the border with Gaza to return home. Right now, there is still tension in the north, but the U.S. is working to try to ease tension between Israel and Hezbollah, and Hezbollah has refrained from responding more aggressively. As Gaza winds down, there's hope the same thing will happen in the north. However, that conflict still does go on. The U.S. and Britain attacked Houthi radar, rocket, and drone sites to try to defang the group in the southern Arabian Peninsula. The Houthis have not been able to harm Israel, but they've impacted shipping in the Red Sea, and that hurts world trade. President Biden sent a letter to the Iranians, and though the content hasn't been revealed, it's likely he used the carrot and stick approach, saying our intent isn't to ratchet up fighting with the Houthis or Iran, but also spelling out our red lines for maintaining open waterways in the Red Sea. I'm hoping that Israel could start to return to normal sometime next month. As airlines resume flying and Israelis return to their homes and businesses, the country will reopen to trade and tourism and any sense of normalcy will be definitely welcomed in Israel. If you're joining us midstream, that's Dr. Charlie Dyer, Middle East expert. I'm John Geiger. Our focus this opening segment of The Land and the Book is current events. Story number three, as the war winds down, the different parties and leaders in Israel are starting to focus on potential elections. Uh, You mentioned this last week, but what has been happening since then? As the 100-day mark in the war uh, passed, there were massive rallies throughout Israel, and while most focused on calling for Hamas to release the hostages, thousands also called for early elections to replace Prime Minister Netanyahu. The latest polls showed a continuing decline in support for Netanyahu and his Likud party. As we said last week, polls have been very unreliable predictors of elections in the past in Israel. And right now, Israel isn't scheduled to have an election until October 2026. But it's almost certain that there'll be a push to dissolve the Knesset once the conflict is largely over. The problem facing Netanyahu is that he's perceived to be responsible for Israel being asleep at the switch when Hamas attacked. He's the longest-serving prime minister in Israel's history, so much of the conflict with Hamas has developed under his leadership. And the current coalition hasn't helped matters. The two far-right parties that Netanyahu brought into the coalition have pushed their own agenda rather than working hard to seek common ground. You know, that kind of polarization is happening in many countries, including our own, but it's creating a backlash in Israel. It's no accident that Benny Gantz and his National Unity Party continue to rise in popularity. 
Israelis want a conservative government, but one that can focus on uniting the country. Once the external fighting comes to an end, watch for the political infighting to take off in earnest. Uh, With Yair Lapid, uh, the head of the opposition, now saying bringing the hostages home is more important than defeating Hamas, and even Gantz urging Israel to agree to a hostage deal in exchange for a long-term halt to the war, we're now starting to see very public cracks in the unity Israel experienced following October 7. Now, if Israel's not careful, such mudslinging could get very ugly very fast. An Israeli startup called Blue Tree Technologies is working to reduce sugar in natural beverages without spoiling the taste. That's a tall order, Charlie. Tell us about this latest innovation, though, from Amazing Israel. Yeah, I found this fascinating, John. The company started with a solid premise. By 2035, half the world's population, that's over 4 billion people, are expected to be obese. And one major cause is sugar. Uh, This includes especially the sugar in natural beverages like orange juice and other fruit drinks. Using their proprietary technology, Blue Tree removes the disaccharides, a specific sugar molecule, without changing the drink's natural taste or other health benefits. They've developed a turnkey system that can be integrated into any manufacturing line. Now, the system is currently being used at a company producing orange juice in Israel. The modified product has 50% less sugar. They've also received patents for the process in the EU and Brazil, and they're currently awaiting approval from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. They're also working on a process to reduce the sugar in skim milk by 75%. Now, all the taste and health benefits of natural fruit juice or milk with half the sugar. That definitely sounds like a sweet innovation coming our way from Amazing Israel. Thank you, Charlie. That's a look at current events. A fascinating conversation coming your way next. The Bible never gives us her name, right? But we know an awful lot about the woman at the well, secrets that held her back, weighed her down. And then one afternoon, she meets Jesus, right? The stranger who uncovers her past and then frees her from it. Well, you'll meet her through fresh eyes as you stay with us for our next segment. Charlie, right now, for somebody who's never taken advantage of our podcast, how would you encourage them to go about uh, doing just that, really using that podcast in a great way? Well, they can go on our website and connect to the uh, Listen Live and get the podcast. The neat thing about it is they can listen then anytime. They can go back and listen to a segment uh, that they enjoyed or that they wanted to get more information from, but it's available anytime for them. All right, our website where you get that podcast and everything else you need to know about the program is thelandandthebook.org. More to come here on The Land and the Book. The Bible never gives us her name, but it sure tells us a lot about her. The woman at the well. She had secrets that held her back and weighed her down. And then one very hot afternoon, She met a stranger who uncovered her past and then freed her from it. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and before we get to the woman at the well, here's a quick thought about how you and I can bring a cup of water to the spiritually thirsty Jewish friends in our lives. So at some point, as you walk down the roads of life with your Jewish friend, the elephant in the room is going to come up, and that would be a historical treatment of Jewish people from a supposedly Christian perspective that was less than Christian. I speak of things like the Crusades. I speak of things like the Holocaust. And Eva Rydelnik is here to help us sort out how do we address those things? How do we present them or not present them? Wow. 
This is a vital area of understanding, and it is the major roadblock in Jewish people, even considering that Jesus might be the Messiah, because of their acute awareness of Christian anti-Semitism, thing that people in the church are often not really aware of, or just kind of in a general kind of bad cloud back there, but that was a long time ago. For Jewish people, it is more real, more deep, more current, and more extensive in knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, when a Jewish person confronts this issue with us, I think the most important thing that we can do is acknowledge the reality of that. That, yes, horrible things were done to the Jewish people in the name of Jesus. And it wasn't just a long time ago. It was recent, and it's ongoing. But those horrible things that were done in the name of Jesus do not reflect the person of Jesus. Exactly right, John. Exactly right. And this is a very difficult um, division to make. But the fact is, and I think this is our challenge in talking to our Jewish friends, these things were done in the name of Jesus. But if you look at the book about Jesus, both the Old and the New Testament, these horrible events are no way drawn actually from the Scriptures, even though the Scriptures were used wrongly to perpetrate these horrors. An important perspective there from Eva Radelnik, who's an adjunct faculty member with the Moody Bible Institute. Tammy Whitehurst is an author, blogger, and full-time speaker. She's been featured in Lifeway magazines, Woman's World, Mature Living, Christianity Today, and and many other publications. She's the co-owner of the Christian Communicators Conference, a training conference for speakers, However, to those who know her best, she is simply Davis's wife, an empty nest mom, and a former middle school teacher. She struggles, like the rest of us, with dust, dishes, cellulite, junk drawers, and wrinkles. It's nice to have you in the studio, Tammy. It is wonderful to be here, John. Yeah, it's we've good done to this meet on you. the phone, but finally here we are. It's yeah. one, yes, yes, yes. Well, you know, let's get right into it. I find it interesting that in the John 4 account of the woman at the well, we're never given her name. I don't think that was a detail that accidentally got left out. I think it was purposely withheld. She apparently had enough shame in her life. No need to weld that shame to her name. What do you think? I totally agree with what you're saying. And when it comes to not having her name, even though there's no name, we know a lot about her, John. For instance, we do know that probably with as many times as she had been married, that there was a lot of shame. We know that she probably had a lot of secrets. We know that she probably did not have a lot of friends because the women didn't want her around their husband. She was probably a lonely woman. She also was probably very disappointed because with every marriage that she had, it didn't work. She was always looking for Mr. Right, but she always found Mr. Not Right for whatever reason. But I know when I think about how she felt as she sat there. Mm. We're talking about a very lonely woman who we don't even know her name. Let's dig a little deeper. Tell me a little bit more about how you pictured this woman in your mind. What's your description, if you could just use your sanctified imagination here? Well, I think that she's probably very despised by religious people. And the last thing she would ever imagine is that that Jesus would come up and say anything to her. Mm. Because most people don't talk to her. What she sees most of the time, I think, is that people laugh at her. People turn from her. Kind of like people that we see today who we don't agree with, who we show disdain for. We kind of just act as if they're not there. And the word that people use a lot of times today is we ghost them. 
I think that this woman was probably ghosted. And, you know, there's a saying, if you live in a small town, if you don't know who you are in a small town, ask someone because (laughs) they can tell you. And I have a feeling that everybody in this town knew her and she knew that they knew her. Tammy Whitehurst has been featured in any number of Christian magazines, many other publications. She's the co-owner of the Christian Communicators Conference, a training conference for speakers. You've been known to say sometimes it takes a long time for God to do something suddenly. I suspect a lot of listeners are shaking their heads yes. So why was the timing here so important? You know, timing is everything. We like to have things done in our time, however We know that God's timing is best. Mm -hmm. I think that what Jesus did here was Jesus prearranged to meet her at precisely the moment that she came there. It was no mistake when he got there. I think that his purpose, his timing, his perfect timing was for privacy. And he wanted to talk to her while she was alone, not in front of a lot of people. And here's the thing, you know, he didn't ask her to get in front of the entire church and spill everything terrible that she had ever done. He wanted to talk privately with her, not humiliate her, not shame her into tricking her Mm -hmm. into doing something or to get her to confess that way. And I think that for us, when I say that it takes a long time for God to do something suddenly, see, I picture this woman as she's not an older woman. Well, I think You know, none of us are old. We're just older than we used to be. Right, John? (laughs) But I think she is more of a woman, maybe in her 30s to her 40s. And to her, she's lived a very long, sad, rejected life. Mm. And God is about to do something suddenly. And in our lives, John, some of us have been waiting a very long time for God to do something suddenly. You know, what role do you think timing plays when you and I try to talk with people and minister to people today? I think of a guy I chatted with yesterday who had a conversation with a friend who shunned him for a while. Turns out that friend was going through deep waters. And only when the time was right would he be willing to share that with my friend. Well, I think that that says a lot about the role of timing in ministry for us today. You know, rough waters make smooth stones, and smooth stones can take down a giant. And all of that has to do with timing, John, all of it. But the thing about timing is that if we trust that God is in control, if we trust that anything that we have gone through can bring people to the Lord, I know that when you're—then we can have transformation. But I know that— when you ran into somebody and they'd never really talked to them, but then the per- timing was perfect mm-hmm. for your friend, Ed. And all of a sudden, it's ripe. Right then is the perfect time, and it's ripe. There was a situation that I had with a woman, and I knew that I was supposed to talk to her about something very personal, mm-hmm. something that if I talked about it at the wrong time would break her heart. Mm-hmm. But if I talked to her at the right time, yes. it would change her heart. Because Jesus was going to use me at the perfect time. I just had to wait till I heard him say, go. Tammy Whitehurst is a speaker and writer. She loves people, and especially people who uh, laugh. (laughs) Tammy describes herself as Texas-raised, Jesus-saved, and 
loving all things cheetah. Now, I'm looking for evidence of that last claim, not finding any. Back to our story. The Bible makes it clear that this woman at the well, as we call her, had some secrets. For anybody not familiar with the story, what were her secrets? Her secrets were that she had been married so many times. And with that was so much shame. And probably, really, everybody knew, so it wasn't a secret. Isn't that how we are often? Sometimes what we think is so secret, everybody knows. And what the enemy can do is choke us with secrets so that he can make us become alone. And if we can be alone and isolated, he can silence us. But the secrets that some of us go through, that is what I think some of hers were. But maybe some of the ones that we go through is that maybe we have done something that we are Mm. so ashamed of and we bottle it down. And I think that secrets can make us sin. Secrets can make us sick. Secrets can do a lot of harm to our health. And if the joy of the Lord is our strength, then when we're hiding secrets, we're not going to have a whole lot of strength to move forward because our secrets are pulling us back. Well, secrets can cost us everything unless we surrender them to the Savior, it seems to me. So how do we know that the woman at the well really did surrender her secrets to Christ? Oh, because whenever he offered her living water, she listened, first of all. And I don't think that he probably took his own cup. I think that she had one cup, and she saw a man who was willing to drink from that cup. Mm. And when he brought up her shame, then all of a sudden she got curious. Because, you know, she thought that he was a prophet. And when he began to talk, she began to listen. And in the end, she realized that the Messiah, the one, was sitting right there with her. Mm. And he loved her anyway. That's the biggest thing. No matter what we've been through, Jesus loves us anyway. And when that happens and transformation happens, It can change our heart. It can make everything so different. You know, theologically, we can readily agree that God is all-knowing and that he sees right through our hearts. But truthfully, many of us live as if we actually can keep this bad habit over here or, or that private sin over there away from the eyes of God. Why the disconnect? I don't know why we think, John, that we can hide it. Because God sees every single thing that we've done that we're going to do. God knows every thought that we have. But in his word, when he says, the truth shall set you free, it's if we will just grab hold of that. You know, in Psalms, it says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Well, the key word there is follow. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Are we going to step out into the truth so that goodness and mercy can follow us? Or are we going to stay in that one spot, our wheels turning, and we go nowhere? That's what happens to a lot of people for a long time. You know, we focus so much sometimes on the details of that woman's life that uh, I I think we we miss the other part. When we bring the true person that we are to the true Jesus, Mm. life transformation happens. He doesn't deal in phony and fake. Ultimately, it seems to me that the addiction to our our silly secret keeping is based on the fear that maybe God doesn't really love us that much after all. Your thoughts? I think that's exactly right. And all of the silly secret keeping and everything that we've done, some of the most powerful people I have 
ever met have a past that was upside down, going every which way but loose. But when they surrendered it to the Savior, they exploded. And all they wanted was to make heaven bigger and hell smaller. Mm. And all they wanted from there on out was to live life different. I know for me, I was 26 years old whenever I surrendered to the Savior, whenever I realized for every mess that I had been in that there was a Messiah and the truth would set me free. I think that's why Messiah is spelled that way, John, <laughs> because he knew that we were going to get in so many messes, whether it was the woman at the well or whether it's us here today, that if we would just grab the truth of who Jesus truly is, that weeping would last for the night, but joy could come in the morning. you got 30 seconds to talk to a woman who right now, a guy listening to you right now saying, I've got my messes. What do I do? What should I pray? Well, first of all, all the messes that you have are no secret to your Savior. All of the the mix-ups and, and the relationship problems, financial problems, whatever it is, if you will just get before the Lord, just you and the Lord, not you in a crowd, but you on your knees and with the Lord, just bear your soul. He will listen to everything you say. And he will not shame you. He will call you by your name, a child of God. And there will be freedom in that because the truth shall set you free. Wow, what an encouraging word from Tammy Whitehurst. A link to her website is at ours, thelandandthebook.org. Check it out, thelandandthebook.org. Up next, it's Bible Questions and Answers with our host, Charlie Dyer. Look forward to connecting with you next on The Land and the Book. great to have your company today on The Land and the Book. We get the fact that you've got choices in listening these days, online or on air. Welcome. I'm John Gager. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, has a Bible open, as he always does during this segment, because, well, your questions are about the Bible. Some are about prophecy. Some are about the Middle East. All are welcome. We'll share with you our email address, how you can get that question of yours to us in a minute. But Charlie, you ready for today's questions? I am, John. I love the question part. You know, a lot of people are asking, how do I share the gospel with my Jewish friend? And that's a good question. This question recognizes the need for a sensitive approach to sharing with Jewish people. Well, our friends at Life and Messiah want to help answer that question. They put together a series of helpful articles on how you can share the good news with Jewish people around you. You'll learn about Jewish cultural sensitivities, how anti-Semitism affects Jewish evangelism, the importance of Messianic prophecy, and more. To access the articles, visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. You'll receive the articles to equip you with practical ways to share the good news with Jewish people around you or online. Again, click on the Moody Radio icon at lifeinmessiah.org. And now we'll swing our focus toward questions that have come in via email. But uh, once in a while, I like to jump in with a question of my own. Charlie, Psalm 16, verse 8 says, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. When David says, I have set the Lord before me, is he speaking of the priority that he has given to God? Or is he speaking of a sense of position, as in the priests went before the Ark of the Covenant? And when he says, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken— 
Is he saying he has this comfort because of his choice to place God above else, or just that whether or not I have the faith, because God is at my right hand, he has everything under control? Bottom line, I'm trying to figure out what the cause and effect relationship is between David's choices and the sense of peace he enjoyed. Well, in the verse uh, there in 16.8, I think the word set is intensive. David's saying he's deliberately set or placed God continually before him. And I think he's stressing position in the sense that he placed the priority of God and his word in the forefront of his life. Now, in the previous verse, he says his heart was listening to what God has to say both day and night. Uh, They then get wrapped up with the word continually there in verse 8. Now, the Lord being at David's right hand, I think, has the idea of strength and protection rather than simply a position of honor. And I do see a cause-effect relationship here. Because David has done his part, that is, making God and his word a priority, he knows that God will stand guard over him no matter what is happening around him, and that's why he won't be shaken. All right. Thank you, Charlie. Appreciate that insight. Here's a question from Marianne. Could you please recommend a book about biblical counseling? I've often wondered how ministers and people and church staff are able to do counseling when perhaps they're unfamiliar with trauma, PTSD, or domestic violence. Any uh, hints here? Well, there are two books that come to mind that I personally have found helpful. Uh, The first is called Competent to Counsel by Jay Adams. Now, I don't agree with everything he says, but I do believe that we can help individuals by knowing how to apply the Bible to life. Uh, The second book is a little longer title. It's called Introduction to Psychology and Counseling, colon, Christian Perspectives and Applications. And it's by Frank Minnerth, Paul Meyer, Frank Wickern, and Donald Ratcliffe. And I knew the first three personally. Uh, This is a little more technical, but it's also helpful. And I think those two books together can provide a a good introduction for someone who wants to know how how to use the Bible when they help other people when they're talking to them. Roger points out lately there seems to be more news about and anticipation of the coming third temple in Jerusalem. What do you think will become of the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque that are there now? And what do Arabs think of all the excitement believers are placing on these upcoming prophetic events? Well, I start with this reality. There will be a temple built. It'll be built where the Orthodox Jews believe it stood before. Now, archaeologically and historically, I'm convinced that's where the Dome of the Rock now sits. The Bible says it's going to be built, but it doesn't tell us how it's going to take place. And certainly right now, destroying the Dome of the Rock would cause an international uproar on the part of Muslims. As a result, we're left with just, I think, speculation. So one possibility is that a war or some other event could happen, like an earthquake that would uh, give Israel the freedom to move forward. It could just be a peace treaty on the part of the Antichrist or an earthquake destroying the building or a battle like that described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 or some other conflict, but something would push Israel to move forward to be able to build the temple. A second possibility is that it'll be built somewhere else. As I said, I believe the original temple stood where the Dome of the Rock now sits, but there are others who believe that it stood elsewhere. One Jewish individual has proposed that it could actually be built just north of the Dome of the Rock. In fact, he's suggesting the temple building proper and the altar could be constructed without destroying either the Dome of the Rock or the Al-Aqsa Mosque. There's another group that's proposing that the temple was built south of the Dome of the Rock, Al-Aqsa Mosque. But in any case, it's at least possible to envision a temple being built Uh, where the Orthodox Jews believe it should be, even if it's the wrong spot. Uh, It might not be historically correct, but it could still be built. Now, I don't know how God's going to work out those details. 
but there's more information and speculation coming out on the issue all the time, and it's causing an increased reaction on the part of Muslims. That's why groups like Hamas keep referring to their actions as being in defense of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Something will need to change before Israel moves forward, and we just don't know what that is. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. It's questions and answers this segment. I'm John Geiger. Glad to have your company. Deb says, I've been reading through Ezekiel on my way through the Bible, and I'm puzzled about chapter 29, verse 11, which gives a period of 40 years in the judgment of Egypt. Do we have a definitive time when this happened, or is it in the future? You know, it's a great question. This is one of those where I say, and I just wish I had a great answer to go with it. It mentions a 40-year captivity of Egypt in that verse. No archaeological finding has yet confirmed an Egyptian deportation to Babylon, say, similar to the one experienced by Israel. However, it's unwise to dismiss a clear statement of Scripture on the basis of incomplete archaeological data. Uh, We know Nebuchadnezzar did attack Egypt. In fact, it's mentioned in Jeremiah 43 and in Jeremiah 46. And assuming he conquered the country, which is what it says there, one would expect him to deport people to Babylon like he did other nations he conquered. Presumably then, the Egyptian captives would have been allowed to return home in the reign of Cyrus of Persia when he defeated Babylon in 539. Uh, So allowing for the time there, there's certainly a 40-year period when that desolation is possible. Right now, though, we have no direct archaeological evidence for that, but... That 40-year captivity can fit into the time frame available in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, someday we might find something specific archaeologically to support it. But right now, I just have to take what God said through Ezekiel at face value, and I don't have a problem doing that. Todd asks, when would you say Ezekiel 39 takes place in the prophetic timetable? Yeah, and that passage, along with chapter 38, I take both of them together, are the Battle of Gog and Magog. I think both chapters focus on the same event. I think it takes place sometime in the first half of that still future tribulation period. Uh, In the chapters, Israel is said to be pictured uh, back in the land and at peace just before the invasion happens. Well, from the day Ezekiel wrote that until uh, right now, that hasn't been true. One key result of the battle, it says, is that Israel will come to know that I am the Lord their God. That's 39 verse 28. That suggests the battle takes place before Israel begins experiencing the spiritual revival that takes place as the tribulation period goes on. And another key result of the battle, it says, is that God will pour out my spirit on the people of Israel. That's chapter 39, verse 29. Again, that suggests the spiritual revival of Israel is one outcome of this invasion. Now, if I put all those pieces together, it seems that during the tribulation period, it must start toward the beginning when Israel's experiencing a false sense of peace because of this covenant that's made with them by the Antichrist. Paul then pictures that as a time when people are saying, you know, peace and safety in 1 Thessalonians 5. It's a time of false peace and safety, but it's shattered by this invasion of Gog from the land of Magog with his allies. Israel is spared supernaturally because of God's divine intervention, not because of the protection of the Antichrist. And that explains why by the middle of the tribulation, Israel is refusing to acknowledge the Antichrist or worship him. Uh, They've now started turning to the true God of the Bible. Another prophetic question from Cynthia. Have you heard anything about the use of hornets or wasps at the Six-Day War? I was told the Jews placed hornets or wasps inside enemy tanks, causing them to abandon the tanks, which then fell into Israel's hands and were the same ones that they used to win the war. What do you know about this? Is it true? Well, I've not heard that story, and frankly, it doesn't have the ring of truth. In the Six-Day War, Israel's Air Force took out the Egyptian Air Force on the first day and then launched their attack against Egypt and Syria 
and the speed with which they moved in that war, I don't believe they had time to sneak up on the enemy tanks in that manner. They, they really rolled at them and over them. Now, I wonder if someone made up the story based on what God did promise Israel back in the original invasion of the land in the time of Joshua. You know, three times it says God promised to send the hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. Uh, Exodus 23, Deuteronomy 7, uh, Joshua 24. So God did use hornets, but it wasn't in 1967. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, where your question is always welcome. I promised you our email address where you can get your question to Charlie. Here's how you do it. The Land and the Book at Moody.edu. That's The Land and the Book at Moody.edu. Are we done? Absolutely not. Charlie Dyer has a devotional that's up next on The Land and the Book. When it comes to the weather, we see all kinds of things in the forecast depending on the season. Rain, snow, sleet, wind, heat. But you rarely ever hear a forecast for hail, which intrigues me because, Charlie, your devotional coming up here on the land of the book has to do with hail, I understand. That's exactly right, John. In fact, we're going to see several times in the Bible where hail came along. All right, and a lot to understand about that. It's going to be a great adventure. Again, we're glad to have you on the land in the book for this fourth and final segment. Before we head into Charlie's devotion, let's pause now for a Holy Land experience, a testimony from somebody who's been to the Holy Land and wanted to share this with you and me. On my trip to Israel in 2012, I had a profound experience with the Lord. I felt His heart and His tears for His people. I felt His love for the the people of Israel, as I've never been able to catch that just from reading the Bible or hearing it talked about or preached. It was a real visitation from the Holy Spirit, and I'll never forget it. Uh, especially when I was standing on the top of Mount Carmel, I believe, and um, looking over the Jezreel Valley is when the Lord seemed to just visit me. It was very, very profound and something that is difficult to put into words. Uh, I'll never, ever forget my experience in Israel, my visit there, and I hope to return before the Lord returns, if it be His will. Charlie, I'm looking forward to your devotional. This is a series you've titled Weather Bulletins. Take it away. Uh, thanks, John. Yeah, in over 45 years of home ownership, my wife and I have had to replace the roofs on two of the houses where we lived, one in Texas, the other in Indiana. In both cases, the damage was caused by hail, golf ball-sized hail that sounded like a frenzied mob of heavenly blacksmiths pounding against the roof with the rounded end of their ball-peen hammers. Both storms left behind cracked and broken shingles. Other shingles were dimpled with pockmarks. Inside our rain gutter was a layer of granules knocked off the other shingles. Now, thankfully, in both cases, the insurance adjusters assessed the damage and covered the cost to replace each roof, minus, of course, our deductible. Now, I was thankful for the insurance, but I was also thankful that both of us were safe inside the house when the storms hit. I would not want to be caught outside during a major hailstorm. And that brings me to today's weather bulletin from the Bible, which is an up-close and personal look at hail. To begin, follow me to the top of the Bethhorn Ridge Route that extends from just west of the site of ancient Gibeon down into the Ijalon Valley near the Ben-Gurion Airport. 
As we drive down the modern Route 443, I want you to pay close attention to the ridge just to our right. This modern road was cut into the side of the ridge, but if you look closely, you can see the original road extending along the top of the ridge as it drops from the central Benjamin Plateau in the hill country down toward the coastal plain. The road is often referred to as the Bethhorn or Bethhorn Ridge Route because it passes through two towns that straddled the ridge and guarded the entryway into the hill country. The strategic nature of this ridge and roadway and the cities astride it wasn't lost on the nation. First Chronicles 8.5 records that King Solomon rebuilt Upper Bethhorn and Lower Bethhorn as fortified cities with walls and with gates and bars. This was the front door to Jerusalem, and Solomon took great care to guard the approach. But long before Solomon stood on this ridge and saw its strategic importance, another leader led Israel's army down the roadway and discovered both the tactical advantage of this particular highway and the power of God that could be displayed in a hailstorm. So let's turn off the modern bypass road and pause alongside the original roadway just below the Arab village that now occupies the site of ancient Upper Bethhorn. From here, we have a good view down the ridge toward the Ijalon Valley and the coastal plain. The leader who's trekked down this ridge we're following today is none other than Joshua, the commander of the army of Israel who succeeded Moses as the nation's leader. Joshua had been tricked into making a peace treaty with the people of Gibeon and three other towns in the hill country. But now Gibeon was under siege by a coalition of five Canaanite kings who wanted to regain control of the important crossroads nearby and push Israel back down into the Jordan Valley. After an all-night march, Joshua and his forces engaged the enemy at daybreak, catching them off guard. We tend to focus on the miraculous long day provided by God, allowing Joshua and his forces to defeat the enemy before they could escape into the darkness. But now that you're comfortable, I want to point out an important detail of the account that's often missed. It's found in Joshua 10, verses 10 and 11. After God threw the Canaanites into confusion, Israel pursued them by the ascent of Beth Horon and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makeda. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky, and more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. This running battle extended all the way down the Beth Horon Ridge Route right in front of you into the Ijalon Valley, and then through the Shephelah past the city of Azekah. Depending on the exact route, that's a distance of 25 to 30 miles. No wonder they needed a long day to make sure the enemy wouldn't get away. But did you notice the other part God played in this victory? He hurled large hailstones from the sky, and they were so large that more of the enemy died from the hailstones than were killed by the Israelites. These were not pea-sized pellets of ice that might sting. They were likely golf ball, baseball, or even softball-sized icy missiles. And the larger the hail, the faster it falls. Softball-sized hail can reach a speed of 100 miles an hour or higher. Caught out in the open with minimal protection or armor, these Canaanite fighters became little more than moving targets in God's icy shooting gallery. Unless you've experienced a violent hailstorm, it's hard to imagine the destructive power of hail. And though hail isn't mentioned as much in the Bible as flooding rain, it's always connected with frightening descriptions of judgment. In Exodus 9, one of the plagues sent against Egypt was a plague of hail. God's warning to Moses emphasized the danger of this plague. 
Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every man and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. Take cover or die. That's a pretty severe warning. In Psalm 105 and Psalm 148, the two psalmists connect hail with lightning. And we know that makes sense because hail is produced by the violent updrafts found in thunderstorms. In describing the plague of hail in Psalm 105, the writer says God turned their rain into hail. A rainstorm can be beneficial, but God transformed the beneficial rain into a violent hailstorm. In Isaiah 28, the prophet pictured God's future destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians, and he compares their leader to a violent storm about to break out on the land. Like a hailstorm and a destructive wind, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour, he, that is the king of Assyria, being sent by God, will throw it forcefully to the ground. But the hailstorm of all hailstorms is still future. In Revelation 16, near the end of the tribulation period, just prior to Christ's second coming, John is shown the ultimate hailstorm still to come. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each will fall upon men, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. The largest recorded hailstones to date have only weighed a little over two pounds, and that storm in Bangladesh killed 92 people. The final hailstorm still to come will be so intense that the balls of ice coming down will be 50 times heavier. But even when it's clear that this is part of God's supernatural judgment, people will still refuse to repent and turn to Him. I do see the sky darkening out there over the Mediterranean, so maybe it's a good time to head back to the bus and drive to our hotel before the storm hits. But as we begin our journey back, I want you to think about today's weather bulletin from the Bible. If rain was usually a sign of God's blessing, hail was always a sign of God's displeasure and judgment. Though it didn't occur that often in the Bible, when it did, it was a reminder that God will hold humanity accountable. And the mother of all hailstorms is still future. So what about you? Have you acknowledged the reality that there is a God who will someday require you to give an account of your life? He's provided a pathway to blessing and eternal life by sending his son to pay the penalty for your sin. But he's also vowed to judge those who refuse to repent and bow the knee. Just like you wouldn't want to be caught outside in a violent hailstorm, so you also don't want to be caught in the judgment of God that will someday be unleashed on those who reject his offer of protection and salvation. Today's the day to make that choice before it's too late. And you know, you can make that choice in confidence with a friend who'd be glad to listen to you, pray with you to receive Jesus Christ and his forgiveness right now as you call 888-NEED-HIM. That's 888-NEED-HIM. There's no cost, no pressure, nothing to buy because there's nothing to sell. So let's get this done now at 888-NEED-HIM. Charlie, very poignant devotional. Thank you for pointing us to Revelation as well. I want to thank you for listening to The Land and the Book. Our host, Charlie Dyer, producer Dan Anderson, I'm John Gager. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. <laughs>